1: Welcome to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. This podcast is a reflection of our connected lives and is dependent on the generosity of you, our listener. So please go to mindpodnetwork.com Sharon and either use the donate button or bookmark the Amazon portal through which we will receive a percentage of whatever you purchase from Amazon, or sign up for a free trial with audible.com. We thank you for your support in allowing Sharon to continue to share her exquisite heart wisdom.
2: So, uh, I was given lots to talk about today by my guru over there, who's in charge. Um, Part of it is faith. And part of it, of course, is the introduction of loving kindness meditation, which we'll get to do some of in, in a variety of forms. So maybe I'll start with faith because it's just a, a context for everything as far as I'm concerned and, and is very interesting to me. That's why I wrote a book on the topic. And it was fascinating for me yesterday to hear uh, in the conversation with Ramdas how it just began to emerge. It is, of course, a, a very loaded word for many people. Um, just as there can be tremendous cynicism or uncertainty about loving kindness, definitely there can be around, around the word faith. So I wrote a book called Faith. Uh, came out a little over 10 years ago and many of my friends said to me, don't call it faith, you know. Call it trust. Call it something else. But I just had that thing, you know, I wanted to call it faith. And I don't know if that was right or wrong. Um, but it was it was such a powerful question for me. And I, uh, at one point I was working with this wonderful writer, Susan Griffin, who was kind of coaching me. And she said to me, you know, a lot of people might assume you write a book about a topic like that because you know all about it and you want to impart your expertise should more likely you write a book about a topic like that because you really need to explore it and the writing is part of the exploration and that certainly was was very true so within the buddhist tradition faith is not considered like a a commodity that we either have or we don't have and if you don't have enough you don't have the right kind you're going to be condemned but it is really a journey. And it's a journey that unfolds in a way that is very different from what many of us assume or or have experienced. It's like when I was telling people I was writing a book called Faith. Some people were angry at me or chagrined or, you know, because for a lot of people, the quality of faith was associated with not being able to ask questions and not having a kind of authenticity of your own uncertainty and not knowing and uh, being silenced in in some ways. And so I realized I wanted to break the word itself free of all those associations to the best of my ability. And and that's why I insisted on the book being called Faith. So um, in that tradition, Faith is a journey, and it begins in a way that I think most of us can really relate to, and that is what they call bright faith. And that's a sense of, you know, how maybe you feel like you're in a closed-down room and everything is dark and, and shut, and then something happens, so that door swings open. And we don't know maybe what's on the other side, but suddenly we have a sense of possibility. It's like, wow, life is bigger than the circumstances I find myself in right now. Then I don't need to be defined by what's happening in my life right now. There's so much else, some, something so immense, something so laden with, with possibility, with options. We don't know what it is, but it's like suddenly we can breathe. And that door swings open for lots of different reasons. Sometimes we meet a teacher, we're inspired. Um, It could be somebody plays us a piece of music, we go to a special place. It could be a lot of pain sometimes that just like, whoa, opens us. So that feeling is, is so extraordinary that it's likened to just falling in love. It's this extraordinary sense, even not knowing what might be on the other side of that, that room. My favorite example of that actually is, um, I was in uh, Cleveland some years ago, about eight years ago, it was just before the 2004 presidential election, um, and uh, at a conference, uh, Mirabai was there too. And uh, I don't know what she did, but I kind of snuck out to go to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> And uh, I was with some other friends. And and we went to the Bruce Springsteen exhibit. And in the front of the Bruce Springsteen exhibit, on the glass, there was a letter uh, Bruce Springsteen had written upon the occasion of Bob Dylan being inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So what uh, Bruce Springsteen wrote about was the first time he had ever heard Bob Dylan's music. So he's, um, I think, about 15 years old, and he was riding in a car with his mother when Bob Dylan's music came over the radio. And the way Bruce Springsteen described it was, he said it was like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. I just love that phrase. It was like a giant boot came down and kicked open the door of my mind. And then he went on to write, and then my mother said, that man can't sing. Which I think points to the fact that we're not all affected in the same way by the same experience. But sometimes something happens for us, and it's so extraordinary. From the uh, perspective of the Buddhist tradition, as extraordinary as that is, it's really just like the launching point. And we continue on that journey because there's um, there are a lot of ele- elements of vulnerability in that intoxicating, extraordinary feeling. Sometimes, of course, we can be kind of fickle about it. We get dependent on what seems to be the external source for that amazing feeling. So maybe we meet one teacher one day and we get that rush and we think, great, I'm gonna follow this guy. And then. meet another teacher another day and we get a bigger rush and we say well forget that first person you know I'm following this one and you know because it's not grounded in our own sense of what's true it's not grounded in ourselves and so we can ricochet a lot and what's even more dangerous in a way or more vulnerable for us is that it's such an amazing feeling that we might really feel, I don't want to do anything that could threaten my proximity to this seeming source of the feelings. So there's also this I'm not certain about. I don't want to question it. I don't want to voice any doubt. I, don't, you know, I, I really want to be very careful not to get alienated, not to get far away. And, and that's considered like a degeneration of faith because that's the place where what's called bright faith becomes what we would colloquially call blind faith. So to actually utilize that extraordinary feeling and go on uh, according to the uh, Buddhist tradition, we need to question, we need to investigate, we need to really look inside ourselves and land that not in, in someone else or someplace else, but, but insight. So that's the process of practice. That's actually why we meditate. It's not in deference to some idea about someone else's realization. It's about the possibility of our own. And and that actually makes Western people sometimes a little squeamish. I see, you know, because it seems selfish or self-absorbed, but it's actually so that we put things into practice. It's like, that's the alchemy. That's the magic instead of saying wow how terrific you know the buddha got enlightened sitting under a tree 2600 years ago wow we actually say what does this mean for me in manhattan what does it mean for me and so that's considered the rightful process that's that's the ongoing process to question, to wonder, to put things into practice, to test it, to see if our lives get better, to see if we are more channeling this power of goodness, to see if we can land that feeling in our own experience. So that brings us to the, the next phase of faith or the next aspect of faith, which is called verified faith. Like we've tested. And that evolves into another stage or aspect of faith that's called abiding faith, which doesn't mean like holding on to a belief and feeling self-righteous about it and kind of trying to trounce other people with that belief. It means knowing something so deeply that we simply are it, we live it, Um that it's not something we are separate from in any way. And this is why I think when, you know, we talk about great teachers in any tradition, there's often a a kind of sense of naturalness to it. One of my great models for this is the Dalai Lama who kind of seems natural doesn't he? Like, you don't really get the sense when he's talking to somebody that he's thinking, oh, this person's so boring, you know, but I am the Dalai Lama. You know, everyone's watching, I better act like I care. And this is, and of course, I'm going to go much more into this when I talk about loving kindness, but Now one of his uh, great quotations is, I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. And if you watch him meet people, you know, the wait staff at a restaurant, or you know, not that he's in restaurants a lot, but like at a hotel, you know, something like that. There just seems this, this very natural expression of interest and care. Natural doesn't mean haphazard. You know, he's the one who gets up at three o'clock or whatever every morning and practices um, for three or four hours before he starts the rest of his day. But it means embodied. It means fully lived. And so uh, when he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize, one of my friends said, giving the Dalai Lama a peace prize is like giving Mother Nature an art award, you know, which I quite liked. I liked that a lot. But again, it doesn't mean it just descended, right? But it's so fully lived, that quality of caring, of compassion, of interest in people and so on, that it doesn't feel like something he's putting on circumstantially. You because know, the cameras are rolling or something like that. And so that's, that's really the uh, stage of faith or the quality of faith where we've moved from just that extraordinary feeling to testing, to verifying, to living out some truths to actually being that truth in some way. So that's the framework. So within the uh, practice of loving kindness, the actual practice comes right in that middle part, in that like verifying, testing, questioning, wondering. So it's, it's very much like a grand experiment. You know, maybe we have this sense of possibility which is so enlivening. What would it be like to live as though I've never met a stranger. Think about how most of us really tend to meet strangers. If we're really self-preoccupied in that particular time, you know, it's like we can hardly notice even the person we're just meeting. It's like all about me, like what do they think of me? Do they like me? Do they like me more than they've ever liked anyone before? (laughs) Oh no, I said something really stupid. They hate me, (laughs) right? And so it's like, uh, there can be so little opening and we can be so guarded and and self-absorbed. It actually is very lonely, isn't it? You know, in contrast to I've never met anyone I consider a stranger. So maybe we get that inspiration and then we practice, and this is sort of an interesting place, because um, within Eastern psychology or Buddhist psychology, qualities like loving kindness and compassion are trainable, and, and that can often be sort of different for us, it doesn't mean they're mechanical, it doesn't mean that they're phony, it doesn't mean like it's a, a fake persona we pick up, and Put on top of maybe some very conflicted feelings it means that as we learn to pay attention differently things shift for us and so that's what we're really doing in a practice of loving kindness meditation is we're stretching the way we pay attention we're taking some risks with our attention we're exhibiting willingness to try out other angles of perception. Not phony and not just kind of make-believe, but things that are also kind of genuinely true. But so different from the particular angle we might tend to hold. So for example, like let's say you're the kind of person who at the end of the day looks back at yourself. I mean, maybe not when you're on Maui, but you know, ordinary work day, Looks back at yourself as though to say, how'd I do today? And let's say you're the kind of person who pretty well only remembers the things you did wrong And the things you didn't like about how you talked, how you did this, how you did that Let's just say (laughs) So much so that, you know, maybe you said a really stupid thing at lunch during this meeting And you're so fixated on that that it's as though your whole sense of who you are and all that you will ever be has now collapsed around that really stupid thing you said at lunch at the meeting. So the experiment or the practice of loving kindness is almost like asking yourself, anything else happened today? (laughs) Like anything good, any good within me? You know, and this isn't make-believe, and it's not trying to cover over things. And maybe that, you know, it's not like you're saying, wasn't that a brilliant and witty thing I said at lunch? Maybe it was really stupid. And there are consequences for that. But that's not all that we are, ever. So it's that collapse, that incredible, rigid limitation. That's what we're challenging by that stretch. Wishing ourselves well, looking for the good inside ourselves. It's a little bit like, you know how these days, um, current psychological research is saying one of the most powerful things we can do, one of the most powerful healing things we can do for greater well-being is just keep a gratitude journal. Like every night write down three things you're grateful for that day. Now I, being a New Yorker, where's my friend from? (laughs) Boston. (laughs) Hey, <laughs> I, being a New Yorker, n- don't find that my first impulse. <laughs> All right, <laughs> I'm more likely to think, okay, what went wrong, and who you know didn't act right, and who could have done their job better, and you know, like that just seems to come more automatically for some reason. So it's an intentional stretch, right? To do that, but it's not pretending, you know it's it's almost like saying I tend to overlook some really beautiful things just through force of habit. so I'm going to see what it's like when I include them rather than exclude them. So that's the nature of the intentionality and it's, it is part of what makes people squeamish sometimes like I'm putting on this. Persona and it 's all phony, but it's really not that at all. It takes a fair amount of boldness and courage to step out of those normal constrictions and very narrow ways of perceiving. so the whole practice is is like a training in attention in awareness so that it's more inclusive in a truthful way or what if you know we tend to have a sense, a really corrosive sense, of being alone, of being cut off. What is the truth of things? What's the actual nature of life? The nature of life is connection. It's interconnection. And it doesn't take a, a spiritual perspective to understand that environmental consciousness shows us that economic shows us that even epidemiology shows us that what happens over there doesn't nicely stay over there it never did but we used to maybe be more prone to think that it did and what we do matters because where we put our energy where we put our actions it ripples out we live in an interconnected universe, like it or not. And it's not always pleasant. It's like, did you see the movie Contagion? So Dr. Larry Brilliant was a technical advisor on that film uh, based on his experience in the smallpox campaign in India. And so I went with him to the opening in New York. And uh, basically, for those of you who haven't seen it, On day one, someone has like a really bad day in Hong Kong, and day three, like half the earth is wiped out. (laughs) And this is something they modeled. You know, this isn't just totally fanciful. It was the kind of movie where like, if you sneezed, everyone else in the theater, it's like, (laughs) oh my God, you know, like, where have you been? But it's such a deep truth of our lives. So now let's do my very favorite reflection, which I'll try to do everywhere, which is just for a few moments sitting here. Think of who all comes to mind as somehow influential in your being here in this room right now. Because very likely no one was just driving down the road and looked in and thought, I'm going to go in there, where those people are going. Very likely we're here because of so many conversations. Somebody gave us a copy of Be Here Now or some other book. Somebody opened a door for us. They told us about their own meditation, their own chanting experience, something. So who all comes to mind? When I do this reflection, I always think about um, the Board of Regents of the state of New York, which gave me a scholarship so I could go to college, which is how I ended up in India. Because they're part of why I'm sitting here right now. And sometimes I do this reflection and I think about those people whose actions I found very, very difficult. Not just the ones I find annoying or irritating, but I think of those times where I really felt like I was on an edge. And I had the understanding that I've got to find a new way of looking at things or I'll never be free. Because they're part of why I'm here right now too. Every one of us is brought here by a confluence of connection, relationship, interaction. That's this moment in time. That's every moment in time. And that's the flavor and the nature of loving kindness. That's what it means, is this deep, deep knowing of how connected our lives are. It doesn't mean you like everybody. It doesn't mean you praise everybody. It certainly doesn't mean you approve of everybody and just let them do whatever. But underneath everything is that deep knowing that our lives have something to do with one another. I think we understand that really it, it's so much this moment is so rich with connection and it's not like we're as isolated as we might feel ever so we bring that to life and we articulate it through the practice of loving kindness we test it out we experiment and that's why there are practices actually formally devoted to the deepening of that quality so loving kindness is a translation of a word in pali the language of the original buddhist text it's metta m-e-t-t-a and loving kindness is the ordinary translation it's a fine translation Uh, my concern about it is that as a word you don't necessarily often hear the word loving kindness used that much so it might seem the might make it seem that the quality itself is kind of arcane and separate from day-to-day life, and, um, whereas really, of course, it's not so. It's a very vibrant, vivid manifestation in very ordinary life every day. For a while, I had the hope that the word metta itself would enter the culture, as words sometimes do. Many years ago, I mean, it could have been like 15, 20 years ago, something like that, Uh, Alice Walker was interviewed in the New York Times and she was asked about her meditation practice and she said, I do metta. So then I got really excited. I thought, oh, great, it's in the New York Times. Now everyone's going to use it. Of course, no one used it (laughs) um, based on that. And uh, a few years ago, um, the uh, LA Laker basketball player, Ron Artest, filed papers to formally change his name to Meta World Peace so for a while there was like this big flurry of media interest and then that died down and then I don't know six months or however long it was before the papers went through and the name change was approved and when that happened there was another big flurry of of media interest and then that died down so I realized I couldn't pin my hopes on him Um, and then was it last season or something? He behaved very badly on the court, I guess. So all these people, like Christian das was bombarding me with headlines that said, "What's wrong with Meta?" <laughs> you know, or "Meta's gone bad," or things <laughs> like that. You know, so it was like that didn't really help. Um, so I think it's very likely the word will not enter the culture. But if you Explore the practice, there's an inner knowing of how nuanced, how subtle we're, you know, a state we're actually talking about. Loving kindness is the common translation. Some people say love, uh, and, you know, some Buddhist scholars say love, and they say, Why are you afraid of saying love? But love, of course, is such a complicated term it means so many things for us sometimes we say love and we really frankly mean a medium of exchange I will love you as long as you love me in return as long as you do this as long as you say it in that way as long as the following 15 conditions are met and I once used that example in front of a group of New Yorkers and uh, someone called out only 15 conditions (laughs) So as long as however many conditions are met, and so that's not, of course, what's meant by metta, although we all know that state. And the reason that it's not metta is because it's so fragile. It's so breakable. It's so dependent on things going a certain way. It's like saying I will really love myself as long as I never make a mistake. So how long is that gonna last? right? It's got to mean, metta has got to mean something different. And so sometimes the literal translation is actually friendship. And so doing that practice is about cultivating the art of friendship for ourselves, for all of life, all beings everywhere, ultimately. And it's, uh, it's like a sequential practice. We experiment, offering loving kindness to ourselves, offering loving-kindness to someone we feel grateful to, offering loving-kindness to someone we hardly know, and and so on, till we come to all beings everywhere. And again, the sense isn't that you're going to invite everyone to move in with you. Or I was just teaching somewhere and and the thing was, well, I don't have to give everyone my phone number, do I? (laughs) And I said, no, you don't have to give everyone your phone number. But there's that deep knowing. It was sort of expressed well for me. And um, I go to Washington DC fairly often to teach. And uh, there was a time when I was going in the place that the organizers were renting, like for a day long, was this elementary school, because it was the weekend. And it wasn't in use. So uh, I loved that elementary school, because all along the walls of the corridors, there were um, big pieces of paper that went up, which were the Carderock School Rules of Kindness. And when we would take a break from sitting, we'd actually all go out and stand and read them, because they were so wonderful. And they, they were included things like, respect everyone on the inside and on the outside. And my very, very favorite rule of kindness was, everybody gets to play everybody gets to play so I thought what would this world look like if we just had that one rule of kindness everybody gets to play everybody counts everybody matters that's very much the sensibility of loving kindness practice so don't you know, please don't approach it thinking, well, I have to kind of assume this um, gooey, sentimental overlay and, you know, slap it on top of what I'm really feeling, but, but explore the challenge of that stretch to include rather than exclude, to pay attention to someone we might normally look right through. Think about how many beings, and I'll you know, talk more about this tomorrow, think about how many beings become the other not even through prejudice or bias, but just indifference. Just like, you don't count. Right? So here's our chance. It's why it's, it's actually a quite radical experiment to be making. So in the formal practice of loving kindness, we, we center our attention rather than on the feeling of the breath, we center our attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases. The phrases are the conduit for the heart's energy and for our attention. So the way we're shifting, the way we're experimenting with attention is through the phrases. So we'll do a sitting in loving kindness meditation. And here too, we rest our attention on the silent repetition of certain phrases. The feeling tone is one of gift giving, blessing, offering. You don't have to try to manufacture or fabricate a certain emotion. Let the practice carry you. Let's see where it brings us. The power of the practice is in the complete wholehearted presence behind one phrase at a time. And the skill set is actually really the same as what we practice with the breath. It probably won't be 9,000 phrases before your mind wanders. Maybe it'll be two, it's okay. When you realize you've been distracted, that's a moment of letting go and beginning again. So you just bring your attention back to the phrases. And we're just gonna do a small piece of the practice right now. explore some more tomorrow. So the first recipient of loving kindness classically is ourselves. We make this offering to ourselves through silently repeating, really you could use whatever phrases. Um, I think last night, he usually ends his kirtan with his own phrases. May all beings including ourselves be safe, be happy have good health and enough to eat, live with ease of heart with whatever comes our way in life. So the, uh, let's see, the original phrases, um, and these are all translations, you know, so you should certainly feel free to create that which makes sense to you. But the original phrases um, making this offering to ourselves are things like, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. That last, may I live with ease, means in things of day-to-day life, like livelihood or family, may it not be a struggle, may I live with ease. Being words, they're definitely going to be imperfect. So I usually say, choose good enough phrases. So you don't feel yourself in a struggle, like, do I really wanna be happy? Maybe I won't be getting anything done if I'm too happy, you know, like, uh, whatever it might be. It's a gift, right? And so choose good enough phrases and broad enough or general enough phrases so that (coughs) you can make this offering to yourself and then to others, because you don't wanna get all lost in in distraction like you know may I have a better person at the Maui airport this time than I did two years ago you know because <laughs> then you think of your friend and it's like you got to start all over again and try to figure it out so we're held by the structure of repeating basically the same phrases I mean that doesn't have to be absolute maybe you think of someone and another phrase kind of comes with them that's fine but In general, we want to just be utilizing the same phrases because we'll go deeper in terms of stability and concentration, okay? So the first recipient is ourselves. (coughs) Once again, you can close your eyes or not, however you feel most at ease. And gently repeat phrases for yourself that work for you. Phrases like, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. See if you can rest your attention on one phrase at a time. Don't worry about what's happening or not happening in terms of feeling or emotion. And if you find your attention wandering, give yourself a break, let go gently and come back. Imagine yourself as the recipient of someone's loving kindness. Maybe it's one person or being, it doesn't have to be a person. Or perhaps you can imagine yourself in the center of a circle. A circle made up of those beings who embody the force of love for you. And just feel yourself as the recipient. All kinds of different emotions may come up. Maybe you feel embarrassed, undeserving. Maybe you feel grateful, delighted. Whatever it is, just let the emotion wash through you as you rest your attention on the phrases for yourself. Then think of someone who's been like a benefactor for you. Maybe there's someone from that circle or someone else comes to mind. This is someone who's been good, to you, maybe they've helped pick you up when you've fallen down, or maybe you've never met them but they've inspired you from afar, the texts say this is the one whom when you think of them you smile, could be an adult, could be a child, could be a pet, it's that embodiment of the force of, of metta of loving kindness, so if someone comes to mind bring them here. You can get an image of them. Say their name to yourself. Get a feeling for their presence and offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. Remember, the phrases are just the conduit for the heart's energy. And then everybody here, which could involve a whole variety of different relationships. Those whom you know quite well. Those whom you don't know at all. And yourself. May we be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease, or whatever phrases you may be using. and those birds and the staff here and all beings everywhere all people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown. May all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. Thank you so much, all beings. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to the Sharon Salzberg Meta Hour. We really do appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Sharon and clicking on the donate button or by using our amazon.com portal for all of your purchases. Namaste.